0: Welcome to Chapters, the podcast where we hear the stories of readers' lives through the books that have meant the most to them. I'm Mary Mahoney, and today I'm talking with Anna Newman. Anna is a graduate of Smith College, where she studied Italian literature and language. She then went on to earn a Master's in Library and Information Science from Simmons College. Today, Anna works as the Open Access Specialist at Boston University. Most importantly for this podcast, Anna is a lifelong reader who has even chronicled her reading using a method we'll hear more about on this episode. From Roxa Boxen to Dante's Divine Comedy, these are the books that have defined her life so far. This is Anna's story. Okay, Anna, thank you for being on the show today. Uh- thank you for having me. I'd like to begin just by asking the same question I ask everyone, which is where are you from and what is your earliest memory of reading?
1: Well, I'm from a small town in Connecticut called Hebram. And I was thinking about this question because I knew you were gonna ask me since I've listened to all of your other podcast episodes and I'm a big fan. And I don't really have a specific memory of reading. But I think when I think about like my early childhood reading all of those memories are really wrapped up in my parents and my family and the libraries that we went to when we were kids. Because, as you know, my, both of my parents are librarians. So I spent a lot of time as a kid just in the libraries that they worked at, kind of running around, exploring the stacks, reading tons they, of books they there. you you
0: read anything you wanted?
1: Pretty much, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And it was interesting, like, My dad was the director of a public library for many years when I was little, and then he transitioned into working for the state library, but still at a place that basically loaned out books to public libraries. It was a library service center. It's in Middletown, Connecticut. And, like, whenever there were new books that the library got, either of the libraries that he worked at, he would always bring them home to us. So it was, like, this kind of curated collection of books that we read, Hmm. Um, and he would just, like, bring them home for us and there'd just be a stack of books waiting for us when we got home from school.
0: That's so neat. Yeah. Do you remember any favorites from that? Um,
1: I don't know if I remember favorites from that. Like it was interesting because we basically just read like whatever he brought home to us. So I think I was exposed to a lot of books that I might not have normally picked up Mm -hmm. off the shelf. I think that was how I found out about like the Anastasia Kropnik series of books. I don't know if you ever read those, but it's just like this, girl who's like very I don't know she's she's kind of a character and it's just like all of her adventures and her family Hmm.
0: why do you think your dad picked that book for you
1: I honestly don't think that he like picked certain books for us it was basically like okay these are the books that are in the appropriate age group I'm just gonna bring these home for you hmm
0: so circling back then what is your earliest memory of did are your parents i assume your parents are readers or librarians yep Mm -hmm. do you remember them reading to you
1: oh yeah yeah i remember them reading to us a lot i remember um even just like everybody in my family like my great-aunts would come visit us and they would be reading to us especially when we were little um so yeah they read to us a lot Hmm. any memorable books from that time period um, I think one book that I really loved growing up was this children's book, this picture book called Rocks a Boxin." Um, and it's this great book, beautiful illustrations about these kids who live in the desert and they basically start their own like little community out in the, among like the sand dunes. Um, and so they like make all their houses and they line them with rocks and they have, they find like, so, like certain pebbles become like their currency, so that's how they like buy things. Like, someone opens a bakery, there's like a library and a jail and a town hall, and all this. Um, and I love this book because it reminds me so much of what my brother and I did when we were growing up because we lived in this very small town, like out in the country. So, we basically just went outside and played in the woods all day. And we had what we called our clubhouse that was out in the woods, and we would just go and and play there and just make up all of these stories and make up this little world for ourselves. So I don't know if we were inspired to do that from the books that we read that had people who created worlds like this, mm-hmm. or if the, that was just... If stories like Rocks of were just a reflection of what we were already doing and just kind of inspired us to do it more.
0: Were books something you always shared with your brother?
1: Um, I think we kind of maintained like separate... Like There are certain books that I remember like we both really enjoyed but we were also like very separate readers in a sense like i remember reading um there's a series of books um by edward eager did you ever read anything by him it's like this series of um like fantasy except kind of like light fantasy like it's basically just magic um like, these kind of, like, elements of magic that inhabit our world. So in the first book, it's called Half Magic, and there's these four kids, and they find this, like, coin on the sidewalk, and what they discover is that they can make wishes on this coin, but it only half comes true. So they'll, like, be like, oh, I wish that I could be home right now, but they'll only be halfway there. Hmm. So they have to kind of, like, learn how to make wishes on it that will get them to what they want. Hmm. Um, but anyway, so the second book in that series was Knight's Castle. And it was basically it brought in it was basically about these kids um, who uh, like created this like castle. They were obsessed with Ivanhoe because I guess there was a movie of Ivanhoe that they went and saw. And so they create like this castle in their playroom, and then at night, like they get transported into that world. Hmm. Um, and that's a book that I remember both my brother and me really enjoying. But it lived in his room. Like, I had the rest of the series. <laughs> that lived in my room, my bookshelf. But that book lived on his bookshelf.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. And do you remember, you know, so when you're younger, your parents read to you and then you kind of slowly transition to reading by yourself, mm-hmm. but maybe you're reading books that your parents give to you, like you were saying, your mm-hmm. dad gave yeah. you books, but do you remember books that you kind of shared with either your mother or your father as being important? Maybe you read it because mm-hmm. your mother and father said, I really love this book.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with my dad, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for sure, like... My dad loves, like, that kind of, like, very, like, wry humor, um, of a raw doll, um, so that's definitely, with my mom, um, it was, um, Frances, Frances Hodgson Burnett, she gave me, I remember her giving me both The Secret Garden and A Little Princess, and she told me that The Secret Garden was her favorite. So I was like, oh, well, I have to like this one the best, right? <laughs> um, but I actually liked Little Princess a lot more. And that book was probably one of the most important books to me when I was little. Why? Um,
0: well, first, maybe tell us what it's about.
1: Right. So A Little Princess is about this girl who has been living in India with her father. And she's getting older, and he decides like he needs she needs to go to like school. So he takes her back to England and puts her in this boarding house where she's, she's treated really, really well because her father is very rich. Um, and the women who run the, the school are not great. They're just, uh, they're not the nicest people. And anyway, so her father dies very tragically, and so she's basically left penniless, and she's an orphan. Um, so they like put her to work as a servant. Um, and she's kind of ironically called a princess at this point by the other students in the school but she kind of, like, takes this on as, like, okay, this is how I'm going to get through this hard time, is I'm going to, like, be a princess inside, basically, um, and I, I don't know why that resonated with me so much, but I just remember, like, that became, like, that was a world that I wanted to inhabit, and that's, like, I kind of took on that persona, um, and, like, I played all of these games based around that book. Like, that inspired me to come up with my own stories. And I remember whenever I had to clean my room, like, I would pretend that I was the main character, Sarah Crew, and that I was, like... Why? <laughs> I don't know, that I was, like, in my little, like, attic room, and I was being, like, really poorly treated and having to clean. <laughs>
0: Sounds very dramatic.
1: It does, yeah. But it, like, got me to clean my room, so I guess it <laughs> worked.
0: <laughs> but doesn't that story ever make you sad? I mean it ends well right but it does end well yeah that always struck me as such a sad book mm. it's a book about loneliness in some ways
1: yeah well i think a secret garden is
0: that also is a sad book even crazier yeah i mean there's a lot going on in mm-hmm. that book obviously francis burnett was a christian scientist yep. that's in the mix mm-hmm. um, there are
1: elements of that in a little princess too oh yeah I, well, I think not so much kind of like the power of your mind to cure illness, but the power of your mind to kind of improve your situation mm-hmm. and make you kind of emotionally feel better like there are so many times when she she's known for having like this really big imagination, and so the people around her like come to her because she'll make up these like amazing stories and when she's like in her attic room she's like pretend she pretends that there's like this this feast going on um, and so she like just tells like the servant girl who lives in the next room over from her, she's like imagine this, imagine that, so she basically creates this world out of her imagination hmm. and I that's actually thinking about it, that probably resonated with me because I was constantly imagining things and I like that that idea that you can
0: kind of create your own world through your imagination hmm. I mean, it, yeah, it seems like when you were talking about it just now that It's not this person who's alone in her room in an attic that you related to. It's like the idea that someone could be living in their imagination and make up stories.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you
0: writing stories? I was writing a lot of
1: stories. (laughs) What about? Um... I started so many stories back then, like... Never finished them? Never finished them. I have, like, probably, like, five or six just, like, manila envelopes (laughs) full of stories that I wrote when I was little, like, before I was, like, on a computer. Wow. And then I'm sure my computer is filled with, like, half-finished, terrible stories that I wrote
0: as a teenager. Oh, my. (laughs) Any memorable plot lines you want to share? Um... (laughs)
1: I feel like some to. things, some <laughs> things are left best kept in vaults. You're just gonna put
0: that in the vault. That's yes, fine.
1: exactly. Yeah. Well, you but might I will say someday, and uh, they might we'll come see. Out. We'll see. I will say though that I think I was in like, like how I knew that I read a book that like really resonated with me was that I wanted to like write something immediately afterwards, hmm. and like sometimes I would be inspired to like. Write stories that were very, very similar to certain books that I read.
0: Some low key plagiarism.
1: <laughs> I prefer to think of it as inspiration, artistic inspiration.
0: Uh huh. <laughs> no. Well, it's ironic because now you basically work in copyright. So I don't think that's true.
1: <laughs> you do. I or do advise. Not? I advise people on copyright. Yes. Okay. Well, but you I'm going to claim. Your own life story. I'm going to claim fair use for my
0: inspiration for these stories. That seems less fun, but okay. Okay. So were you going to give us a plot line or did you want to move on? <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So we talked about books that maybe your parents inspired you to read because mm-hmm. they mattered to them. Yeah. But what are the first books that you read by yourself growing up that, that you thought this really matters to me and this is mm-hmm. resonating with me as a person? Yeah. This book is mine. Um, hmm.
1: I think when I was like early teenage years, I started, I discovered the author Joan Bauer. And um, she would write these books um, where the main character was always like a teenage girl who's going through some kind of, you know, some kind of problem in some sense. But she also had like a really amazing passion for something. Um, Like one book she wrote, the main character was, grew giant pumpkins. for, like, display at, like, for competition, basically, at, like, the local fair. Um, Another book, the girl was, like, loved working in this shoe store. And then another book, the girl was really into, like, family genealogy. So it was, like, these very, like, interesting um, hobbies that each of the main characters had. And all of the books were, like, very empowering, um, where kind of each person kind of came to terms with the issues that they were working on. And, kind of found their own voice by the end of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that really um, that really struck a chord with me, I think, when I needed it too. Yeah. Um, And the author also, I wrote her a letter, and she wrote me a letter oh. back. Yeah. I wrote her a letter because my dad actually saw her at, like, a library conference and heard her speak. And she said, I always return all the letters that I get. So he was like, you should write her a letter. Like, you love her books. So I did. And she, I got a letter back from her a few months later. Say, are you
0: willing to say what you said? Um, morning, what I, do, said I think I
1: talked about how much I loved her books and how, like, I also wanted to be a writer. And, you know, like, what advice did she have for me? And she wrote me this very, like, nice letter back just saying, like, you know, just keep writing. Just keep practicing. Like, hmm. yeah, it was
0: very it was very sweet. And you took that advice by not finishing any of books? <laughs> I mean... You're working, it on was that. a hard time, yeah, yeah, yeah so I was busy, was I was busy with who is stuff. Teenage Anna who's reading these books, <laughs> um,
1: I don't know. Uh, well, like, what do you mean me by that? that?
0: Joan Bauer books strike you because mm-hmm. it's a girl who has an obsession mm-hmm. with something and she's yeah. going through some challenge, and I think you even said something like you know, teenage, right? Challenges. Right. So without getting too specific, I mean, did yeah. that resonate with you because being a teenager was tough?
1: I mean, I suppose, but just like in the normal way of being a teenager yeah. where like your emotions are like all over, the all over the place and crazy and you're trying to figure out like what you want to do with your life and yeah. where you want to go next.
0: Do you want to grow pumpkins for the Hebron and
1: I, I can't say that I do. I can't say that that would be the thing.
0: But were you turning to books at that time to, I mean, so you're turning to books to help you deal with being a teenager, mm. consciously or not? I mean, we're right. kind of looking back at this and saying, and you can articulate, I like Joan Bauer books because it was someone who was dealing with a challenge, even if the challenge was itself being a teenager. Mm-hmm. But maybe as a teenager, you're not picking us up saying, I love this book because it's yeah. about a teenager dealing with challenges. It could yeah. just be something else. So... Yeah. What else were you turning to at that point in your life to help kind of figure yourself out that you can remember? Mm. Um, Like
1: besides books or?
0: Uh, Well, I mean, I would stay with books. I would (laughs) say whatever you want. This is your episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure. That's a hard question to answer. Yeah. I mean, I guess what other books do you remember from that time just being important to Mm. you? That might just be a way of getting at that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember, like, at that point, like, devouring Agatha Christie books, and those continue to be, like, my comfort food. Like, if I just want to read something and I don't really want to think too hard, like, those are the books that I will turn to. Mm -hmm. And this all came about because my mom, I think, had read them, like, when she was younger and was like, oh, those books are great. Like, I want to read those again. so she decided to just buy, like, all of them. Hmm. Um so she would like pick up a few like whenever we were in, in Borders. RIP Borders. R. I. P. Borders. <laughs> or Barnes and Noble. Um and we would like both read them. So it was it was something like it was a way for me to be close with my mom and to like do something with her and Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, and I just like I love mysteries like certain mysteries. Okay. Fair enough. Like the kind of like old school mysteries that Agatha Christie represents. So not, like, true crime? No. No true crime.
0: No, like, cat mysteries. Okay. <laughs> that feels like some unnecessary shade at people who like cat mysteries. I mean,
1: if you okay. like cat mysteries, I think that's totally fine. All but right. they're just not my cup of tea.
0: All right. So what else were you discovering as, what are you now, high school age person?
1: High school age? Um, I also discovered Edith Wharton, who I really loved. Um, I had to do, this was senior year, I had to pick two books by an author and for, like, a final term paper, and I picked The Age of Innocence and The House of Mirth. Um, and I loved both, both very of those. Intense. Both very intense, both hugely depressing, yep. but I loved them. I mm. loved them. Like, I loved her Why? social commentary. I loved her style of writing. I loved her wit. I loved how she, like, captured emotion.
0: What do you think you get out of a sad book? Hmm. Both of those have very sad endings. Yeah. I mean, some people yeah. would say they don't. They're not sad. They're something else. But mm. Well, I mean, in one of them, we'll one of them, them dies. Like, that's sad. I don't know how sad. you be, can <laughs> say anything else but sad. Yeah. But I guess Age of Innocence you could say something yeah. else about yeah. it. yeah. But let's just, as a placeholder, say they have sad mm-hmm. endings. What do yep. you think people get out of reading sad books and mm-hmm. loving them? what's to love in a sad book
1: yeah well i think it's it's more of a reflection of real life right like there isn't always going to be a happy ending like bad things are going to happen and i think when we reflect on the human experience i think books that have sad endings or kind of tragic things happen help us help us reflect on our own experience and help Mm -hmm. us kind of figure out how to deal with things in our own lives has that been true for you i think so yeah Mm -hmm.
0: So it was like an actually good school project that. Oh you yeah. To read an author you actually enjoy. Yeah,
1: and then I went the next few years. I went and I read like everything she wrote, all of her novels, all of her short stories.
0: And they held up for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ethan Frome. Yep. No, I can't do that. That <laughs> was like that. Even brought depressing to a point where I couldn't deal with it.
0: Really? Yeah,
1: I mean that. Like you read it,
0: right? Yes.
1: And at the end, like, is this a spoiler? I mean, it's, it's been written for like it's, years and years. It's over I feel years like
0: old. I think people <laughs> <laughs> wanted a surprise ending. <laughs> That's long gone. So yeah. go for
1: it. So at Give the end,
0: so
1: a plot e- I don't remember like too much about it. So you might have tell me. But so Ethan Fromm has this wife he doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Then a relative comes to visit. And he, like, falls in love with her, and they're like, we're going to run away together. So they get on a sled. Giant question mark. Or something. Yeah. Something. They're on something. It's snowing. Whatever. It's dangerous outside. They hit a tree. <laughs> no one dies, but this girl is, like, kind of, like, gets brain damage, I think. So he has to care for her and live with his wife, still married to her. Like, that is really
0: depressing. Yeah, that's... I can't. It's not a feel-good book. It's not a feel-good book. I once heard an author I won't name say that she gives every book she writes a sad ending because that increases the artistic integrity of her (laughs) work. Do you think if Edith Wharton wrote a book with a happy ending, you would still feel the same way about her? Hmm. Probably not, no. Hmm.
1: Because I don't think it would feel genuine
0: did you read some of those other books though like that girls of a certain type discover in high school like jane austen for example where oh, yeah you know n- again this is another 200 year old spoiler alert but almost all of her <laughs> books end happy right all of so them. does that take away for you or is that just a i different don't think so experience
1: different experience for sure yeah hmm. yeah different subject matter
0: yeah
1: in context Fair enough.
0: Yeah. So what's the next big reading experience in your life after this Edith Wharton
1: Yeah. Um, so when I went to college, I studied um, foreign languages. I studied... Um, I, I went to Smith College, and I was an Italian major with a Spanish minor. So I really... I took, I think, one English lit class when I was at Smith, but the rest were all italian or spanish literature classes so i read like very little english literature um so huge gaps in my knowledge for sure but that's fine i'm okay with that um so i read a lot um in italian and spanish
0: um and uh what got you interested in learning italian and spanish in the first place
1: um i started studying spanish in high school
0: because it was like one of the
1: few languages that they offered Um, but I just really love, I think the process of learning a language is something that really appeals to me. Mm. I mean, it's kind of like, it's very logical, which you know that I like, and it's kind of like a puzzle in a sense. It's like, you're trying to put these words together. You're trying to learn these rules and figure out where everything fits in. Um, and it's also a way of, like, accessing a different culture and language and like, uh, literary works that you don't really have access to otherwise. Mm. Um, so I like that it kind of, it broadens your mind to like different perspectives. Um, so, you know, I started, um, studying Italian at Smith, um, basically because I have Italian American ancestry. So I was always been really interested in that culture, but I was able to appreciate it in a much deeper way. Um, than without, than I would have without knowing the language. Hmm.
0: So, what did you read in Italian that really resonated with you?
1: Um, I think the ma- the biggest thing for me was Dante and the Divine Comedy, the Divina Commedia. Um, I uh, well I was I studied abroad in Florence, Italy, for a year, and while I was there, I had to take a class at the University of Florence. And the class that I chose to take was Dante's Purgatory. So this is the second book in the three, the series of three. So this, in case listeners don't know, The Divine Comedy is basically the story of Dante's travel through hell, purgatory, and paradise. Um, so he devotes one book to each place. And this, this epic poem, he's guided by various people throughout his journey, namely Virgil. Um, for books one and two. Um, And this, so I took this class, and I just remember, it was like an amazing experience. Um, It was very, very challenging, because it's written in this old Italian, so you kind of have to, it's hard even for native Italian speakers to understand it, so I was, you know, like I had to work really hard at it. Um, and I just remember this one day, um, sitting in class and we're in like this crazy old building that like looks like a church. So like the professor's up at the front, but her voice is just echoing in this huge chamber and she would read the, the canto, um, or like the chapter basically, um, out loud. And then she would kind of like explain it to us. And I just remember like, um, sitting there one day and just like getting chills in my spine, like listening to her read. Um and that was like an incredible experience. Um and she was telling so my favorite canto in purgatory is canto 5. And it's um Dante's in the part of purgatory where people who have been killed violently but repented in the last moment of their life, they have to wait before they can move on to like the next levels in purgatory. And so he talks to three spirits there. And the first two are men, and they're just, like, going on and on about, like, here are the violence of my death, blah, 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 and this happened to my body, and I was washed down a river, you know. But then, yeah, and then, but then, like, the very last, like, four or five lines ends with this woman, and there are very few women featured in the Divine Comedies. that this woman, whose name is Pia, who was killed by her husband, and she comes in, and she, before she even starts her story, she, like, kind of basically, like, expresses concern for Dante's, like, state of mind, Hmm. um, which is something that not a lot of people, not a lot of the spirits do. And then she kind of tells her story very succinctly in about three lines where she's like, my husband killed me, basically. Um, And it just ends like that. And it's, like, this very powerful moment. And that, like, hearing her read that, like, brought chills to my spine, so that was like this really incredible moment of kind of connecting on an emotional level with this book and with this character.
0: So what about that, if you had to explain that moment of connection, the mm. chills on your spine, why that passage? Why this book? Mm. Um,
1: I think the book has always appealed to me. I don't, part of it is probably that this was the first um, book in the Divine Comedy that I read and I read it at a place when I could really, like, immerse myself into the subject matter. So I think part of the reason why I love this book so much is based on the experience that I had while reading it. But I think I also like the idea that, you know, all of these spirits in this book have the possibility for redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I I enjoy that. And you also kind of see this relationship between Dante and Virgil evolve over time. So, in hell, Virgil knows where he is. Like, that is where he exists because um, he's in limbo because he was born before Jesus, so he will not be redeemed, you know. Um, so hell is like his place like he's familiar with it he can guide Dante through it but when he gets to purgatory he's never been there before so he doesn't really know where he's going so you see like these moments of doubt and you see like Dante has to stop relying on him completely um so their relationship which had been very much kind of like father-son really evolves and becomes much more complex throughout this book so that's something that I really appreciate hmm But I think, kind of going back to your question about this particular character, I think what resonated for me with her is, um, I think that the fact that she was, like, this woman who appears and makes such a powerful statement with so few words. And I think, like, as a person who, um, like, my personality is not one to kind of, like, show off, like, I'm not very comfortable, like, making presentations and being the center of attention and... But I feel like I do have something to say. And so I appreciate the fact that she was able to say something in very few words that was very um, momentous in this canto. And I think, like, the most powerful story of the three that were told. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Do you have a favorite
1: quotation? (laughs) Um, Not that I can remember off the top of my head.
0: Okay. Well, so did you actually have to try and translate this for yourself, or were you reading it in translation? No, I was reading it in Italian. Okay, so would yeah. you... I'm curious because I'm someone who's... I feel like I'm still learning English. Okay. <laughs> That's where I'm at with languages. Right. You know, I took Spanish in school for mm-hmm. an embarrassing amount of years. I know some Spanish. I can read it. I can't really speak it. So... Whenever I read something that's not in English, that's in Spanish, I'm trying to just make it English in my head. Mm. I don't want to read it on its own terms, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm curious about with you is when you're reading things in translation, are you... What happens in your mind? Are you reading it... On its own, terms. you mean when I'm reading something in a foreign language? Yes. Are you trying to make it English for yourself, or are you just living in whatever language that is and trying to make sense of it on the page?
1: That's such an interesting question because that's something that, like, my professors would talk about a lot when they were, like, giving us things to read. And they were like, don't try to understand every single word of this. Like, don't be at your dictionary looking up every word you don't know. Like, just read it. And figure out what it means. And if you have to look up words, look up some words, but don't look up all the words. Like, just see what you can figure out from context clues. I mean, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, I would have just gotten so frustrated. Mm. Like, it's totally, yeah, I mean, it's totally frustrating. And it definitely takes a lot more energy. Like, even now when I read in Italian, it still takes much more energy than when I write in English.
0: Hmm. Can you tell the difference if you're reading... There's how many, who knows how many translations of the Divine Comedy Mm. out there. Yep. If you're reading a translation and you think, this is a terrible translation, Mm -hmm. what makes something a terrible translation? And what makes something a good translation?
1: Well, that's like, that's such a huge topic. That's so controversial, I think, within the translation community. Because you have to strike this balance where you have to, you want to maintain a sense of the original text like you want to maintain like the feeling the style of the author the original intent behind the words and the language and then you have to kind of balance that with like uh, maintaining the integrity of the text itself and the words that people use so it's kind of this balance between like a more literal translation and a more kind of a translation that's focused more on the meaning of the text okay so for example, there have been... So Dante is particularly hard to translate because he does this thing called Terza Rima, where it's like this, Excuse like... Excuse me? It's like Terza Rima. It's like thir- third rhyme or something like that, but it's basically like this kind of, like, interlocking um rhyming scheme, and I can't, like, I can't, can't remember exactly what, like, I couldn't tell you, like, the rhyme scheme in itself, but it's basically, it's kind of like this... Like, very intricate rhyming scheme. It's like impossible to maintain that in an English translation because the words are going to be different. Like, so that's very, so that's something like that translators of Dante over the years, I think, have struggled with. It's like, do you try to make it rhyme at all or do you leave the rhyming out of it and just like sacrifice that? Because in the original text, you have the rhyme and that means something when you're reading it, but like in the translation, that might not be there.
0: Hmm.
1: I actually recently read this crazy translation of um, Dante's Inferno by this poet um, Mary Jo Bang and she like she decided that what she was going to do was try to like recreate what it must have meant for like contemporary readers of Dante for us so like when Dante wrote the Divine Comedy he like he wrote in the um, what's called the Vulgari which is basically like like sort of modernish Italian, like, not Latin, basically. Um, and so, like, ordinary people could read it. Um, and then he makes all these references to, like, his peers of the time and, like, all of his enemies and his friends, like, his enemies end up in hell. You know, like, all of these, like, Can be- contemporary, ref- like, essentially pop culture references, right? So what she does in her translation is she kind of translates those to our times. So she, like, brings in, contem- like modern slang, she brings in modern references, she's trying to recreate that experience of reading with her translation. It's not a literal translation by any means, like it doesn't, like it it's a translation of the text, but it's not like, it doesn't treat the text in the same way that other translations that are more traditional have done. So
0: when you say she's making pop culture references, in- mm-hmm. In a contemporary way, does that yeah. mean for us? Like, is she yeah, yeah. celebrities from now in the book? Um, yeah, in a sense, yeah. So can you think of an example? Oh,
1: uh, that's hard. That's... I don't know if I remember... I don't know if she was kind of specifically referencing celebrities, but it would be kind of like, you know, talking about contemporary events or slang, you know, like, things that we would find meaning in now. Okay. So, like, when, when Dante's describing, like... Political intrigue or something. She's going to tie something like that in, like something that we would reference for political intrigue today.
0: Okay, like Watergate or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think
0: yeah, it's not an issue of translation. Or maybe it is. You can correct me, but I know with Shakespeare, mm-hmm. um, the performances of Shakespeare. A lot of times, people think they're updating Shakespeare mm-hmm. for modern yeah. day. And we'll put it in so-called modern-speak, and it ends mm-hmm. up... I've seen a lot of this when I was in high school when they made kind of versions of Shakespeare that they thought teens would be interested in, and it ends up being, like, <laughs> hey bro, like all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it just seems like it robs Shakespeare mm-hmm. of so much of what his work is, which is yeah. the beauty of language, even if you don't necessarily understand everything that you're reading. Yeah. And so is that kind of the the danger of doing that with Dante? Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think they're all like interpretations yeah. and I, I think like every translation is a translator's interpretation of the original text. Um, like if you think about all the classics out there, like there are new translations that come out all the time. It's like, we keep updating them. Like we new people come on the scene who want to like give their spin on certain author like, certain classic works.
0: Would you be interested in doing your own Dante translation? I think that would be too hard.
1: Be would too you, hard. I
0: know that you're a pop culture person sort of in that you watch The Bachelor. I mean, think <laughs> about you could do your own Purgatorio just using The Bachelor.
1: Isn't The Bachelor more like hell? That's what I think. Like that mansion, that's that's hell.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I guess it depends who you are. Yeah. Um, So you're in Italy. You're there for a year. Mm -hmm. You're reading Dante. You're loving it. You're translating things. What else can you remember from that time in your life as a reader that you know has stayed with you?
1: Mm. Um, Well, I think like I. I got really into. translated literature just in general like outside of italian literature at that point um right after i got back from italy i um interned for a literary translation journal that was based at smith um so i was helping to like edit translations and do like work on production work on the journal um and then after college i got i kind of got much more into reading translations of all kinds um and reading just a lot more literature from other countries than I had up to that point. Hmm.
0: Such as?
1: Um, well, I, so I found out about this publishing house called Open Letter Books. So they are based in Rochester, associated with, um, I don't know if they're associated with the University of Rochester, I can't remember. But um, they kind of burst onto the scene with their blog, um, which is called 3%. And 3% is the um, amount of books that are translations published in the United States out of all the books that are published in the United States. So 3% of all the books published in the United States are literature and translation, which is crazy. Like, it's such a low number for all the books that are out there in the world. Um, so they started this blog, and they started this publishing company. Um, so I – and part of the way that they fund themselves is through these subscriptions. So you can purchase an annual subscription, and you get all the books they publish that year, which I think is, like, 10 books. So I did that. So I got a lot of books that way. And I was reading their blog and finding reviews of books and seeking out those books as well. Um, they also run this, like, Best Translated Book Award. Um so I one year tried to read all the books on their shortlist, but it's hard because a lot of these books are published by small publishing companies, who don't aren't very very well known. And so, if you are looking for books in bookstores or in libraries, they don't necessarily know about these companies or know about these books. So it's like you really have to search them out to find them.
0: Hmm, that's frustrating. Yeah,
1: and it's very kind of indicative of, I think, the world that we live in, um, and of the problem that exists in like, the the book publishing industry right now, where it's dominated by, like, these very huge, like, the big five, like, the huge players. And so you miss a lot of, like, very good work that's going on.
0: Or hmm. right, is this blog ongoing? Can people see
1: Yeah, this oh, app? absolutely, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are some gems you've discovered reading works in translation?
1: Yeah, let me look at my list. Um, okay, um, so... There's this book called The Housekeeper and the Professor by Yoko Ogawa, translated by Stephen Snyder. And so this book is about this woman who starts to work for this professor. I think he's a math professor. And he's basically, like, lost his memory, in a sense. So he will only remember things up for, like, a certain amount of time, like, two hours or something. And then his memory, like, resets itself. Mm. So every time she goes to see him... He meets her again for the first time, and it's just like this very kind of sweet story um, about their relationship. Um, That's a great book. Um, Another book I love is um, called *Visitation* by Jenny Erpenbach. This is translated from the German, and it's like the story of a house in Germany um, over, you know, a century or so. Um, And that book I think is a great illustration of what happens when you read works in translation because. I learned so much about German history through that book. Like, I knew, like, the very rough outlines, like, World War II, Nazism. But, like, this book kind of walks you through, you know, decades and decades of German history. And so, like, I was on Wikipedia, like, looking stuff up while reading this book. So it was a really illuminating experience um, and just so, like, well-written and very poetic. Mm. Um, And one of my favorite authors that I've discovered through this is... um, a Chilean author called Alejandro Zambra. Um, and his book, Ways of Going Home is one of my favorite books. Um, the ways that it talks about um, nostalgia and about family relationships, I think is really wonderful. Um, he also, uh, a translation of one of his books um, was just published recently that I read called Multiple Choice, and it's in the format of like a standardized test. Mm. So that's really really neat. And, um, Megan McDowell translates all of his work. Um, so yeah, I think those are a few that I've just really loved.
0: Hmm. What are some things that reading works in translation make you think about? Like, how is it different than reading Mm. a book that's just always lived its life in English?
1: Um, I think you get exposed to a lot of different perspectives and different worlds that you wouldn't have normally been exposed to if you're just reading literature from that's American or even Western really um so I think that as just kind of a reader that's interesting if you are exp- like interested in translation or have studied translation at all I think that's kind of like this added part where you're when you're reading the book you're thinking about like what was this originally like what kinds of what happens to come up with this final version um you know like what incarnations did the original text go through to get here um and there are some parts when you're like oh wow like this must have been really hard to translate like anything that has like a song in it or like a lot of references to um pop culture that american readers might not understand or english-speaking readers might not understand um You know, things of that nature. And it's kind of interesting to see how people deal with that. Like some people will put in footnotes, some people will put in like, kind of parenthetical explanations in texts to kind of help English speaking readers um, understand the work because you're not just translating from one language to another, you're also translating from one culture to another. So I think that's important to remember. And that's often one of the hardest things about translating.
0: Have you ever read any books that are American that then become translated into Italian or Spanish and and read them thinking Mm. they got this right, but they didn't get this right? This Mm. thing about American culture was lost in this translation.
1: Yeah, I haven't read too many books. I think I remember reading like Harry Potter in Spanish when I was learning Spanish, Um, but I don't remember, you know, like obviously some of the words are different um, in terms of kind of the words that J.K. Rowling makes up. Yeah, um, but I don't remember. I, I tried that in that we
0: way. We were part of a translating group when I was in grad school to mm-hmm. learn Spanish to, for, to pass our foreign language exam. Yeah, and no one else in the group knew Spanish. Um, I had taken in by then an embarrassing number of years of Spanish, <laughs> sure so we're all sitting around a table translating Harry Potter into Spanish, and you know, like. Muggle, like how to say that, yep, yep. and Espanol, like all of this stuff. It mm-hmm. didn't really help us on the translation exam, it turns out. A lot of the <laughs> in Harry Potter doesn't help you. don't you. find that in the grad
1: school exam? <laughs> I guess
0: they just weren't on to the same stuff I was on to, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So what else in your life as a reader? So you're done with college, I guess. You're mm-hmm. out working somewhere.
1: Yep. Um, I think... When I think about books that I've read post college, um, I think one book that's really been really influential to me is um, a book by Barbara Kingsolver. It's kind of this memoir she wrote called Vegetable Animal Miracle. Um, and it's about her family's experiment to eat only local food for a year, um, which I know you have issues with because you're. As, as has been documented on this podcast before, your diet's terrible. <laughs> That's unkind, but okay. Um, but I love this book because it made me think about food and sustainability in a way that I hadn't before, and kind of exposed me to the like the amount of effort that goes into creating, producing, transporting, delivering food to us is really crazy and has such an impact on the environment, um, in a way that I hadn't really fully understood before I read this book. Um, and I think it also connected me with this idea of like living off of the food that you produce yourself really connected with me because growing up, my dad had this huge garden in our backyard. So basically all of summer into fall, often into winter, depending on how much he froze of what he created, we were just eating vegetables that he had grown in the garden. And that was always really important. And it was always, you know, something that we were proud of. Like when people came over to the house and for like dinner or something, like they would always be like, oh, like what, what, what's here? Like what's grown in Hebrew and that you have? And my dad would be like, oh yeah, like the potatoes are mine. The beans are mine. And the corn is mine. So it was like this kind of great thing that like, here we are, we can live off of the food that we produce. And that's really important. Um, so that I think really connected with me. Um, and that's, you know, I love that book. And at the time I was living um, out in Western Massachusetts where there are just farms everywhere. So on my way home from work, I would just stop at like one of like six farm stands on my way home and pick up food to eat for dinner that night. And it was kind of like my way of trying to eat locally. I don't think I could ever eat like everything locally because things like flour, that's hard to get. I mean, I don't care as much about that. (laughs) I would be fine not eating cereal. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oranges. I mean, fruit, that's really hard. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think um, in the book they each had, like, one cheat item, and I think one person's was, like, a piece of fruit, like bananas or something. Mm. Because it's just, like, if you, you know, apples, I guess, in the fall, and then you rely, like, if you dry fruit, you can rely on that. Mm. Yeah. So the whole eating locally thing didn't last... For me? Yeah. Well, then I moved to a city and it's harder to eat locally.
0: In Boston.
1: Yeah. I mean, they have farmer's markets, but, you know, they're just not... Like, you don't get the same selection that you can get um, just in the farm stands out in Western Mass. Have you ever read any cookbooks in translation? Um, I have a an Italian cookbook. It's like an Italian desserts cookbook that I bought while I was in Italy. Um just like picked up at a bookstore um it's hard though because they use um like grams so you have to like translate that into the appropriate measurements for my like measuring cup and measuring cups and all that so
0: that's a challenge
1: so it is a challenge yeah Hmm.
0: what else has stayed with you in more recent years as a reader what's what are books you're turning to to figure out your 20s although you're just about to leave your 20s that's right
1: yeah that's right um i don't know i don't i can't say that i've you know been consistently turning to like books that have a certain theme to
0: them or anything like that right now um or a book that you were like going through something you were found some book and it was like whoa this book found me at the right time mm. or a book that helped you connect to, you said you moved to Boston, like are book, something you use to connect to people in your life that you've met in this new phase of your life. Um,
1: I think so. Certainly. Yeah. I think I love reading books that people have recommended to me and recommending books to other people. Um, at my previous job before I was in grad school, um, one of my coworkers, um, a lot of my coworkers really loved to read, and one of my coworkers really loved historical fiction, so she would recommend a lot of historical fiction books to me. And I think I'd always enjoyed it, but um, through her, like I was exposed to a lot more historical fiction than I, you know, had been reading. Um, and so that's kind of stuck with me, and I continue to seek that out. Um, I'm also in a book club so that's kind of a What's way that like? it's well it's you know with my a few library school friends um, we all take turns suggesting books and reading them both of the books that I have suggested uh, have been terrible um, but I guess that's you know part of life is you're going to read books that don't resonate with you and you think are quite bad
0: What's it like showing up at the book club meeting knowing that this book that you've picked and forced your friends to read is terrible?
1: I feel so bad right now. I like, we just read this book that I thought was terrible and that I had picked and I feel so guilty for having made people read it. One person gave up. I was like, yes, I endorse that decision. This is a bad book. Wow. So, I mean, like, fingers crossed next time I pick a book that's actually good, I might have to like start screening books before I suggest them for book club.
0: That feels against the spirit of your book club, but okay,
1: I mean, it does sort of, but like I three times like people are gonna throw me out yeah that that might happen, yeah,
0: hmm, do you
1: record what you read? I do, yeah, I have a f- couple ways of doing that, um so I use goodreads, I think like a lot of readers do, um but I also keep a pretty detailed spreadsheet. I have kept this since I was, like, basically in elementary school. I think. What? <laughs> um. Yeah, I think I started. Well, my mom. I think both my parents keep track of what they read, and my. I think I was watching my mom one day, and she was like updating her spreadsheet of books, and I was like, "Oh, that's really cool! Like, I should do that." So I started doing All that. Do your
0: parents keep an Excel file. I
1: think my dad keeps it on paper. Okay. I'm not quite sure, but my mom has an Excel file. Yeah. Um, well, she's okay. She's a cataloger. She's a library cataloger. <laughs> so it totally makes sense. But um, yeah, so I have this spreadsheet that I've kept since I was very young where I record all the books that I read with a rating and then like a one word, like a one sentence description of what the book is about, which is theoretically supposed to help me remember like what the book was about. But sometimes I look at these books and I'm like, I don't remember reading this. Yeah, but I have no recollection. i uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's stuff from 1999 on there. What? Yep. Pre Y two K reading. Yep. Pre Y
0: two K. Yeah. What are you gonna do with this file? Um, is this off limits? Is this password protected? <laughs> I mean, if
1: you'd like to see it, you're certainly welcome to. But I don't know if I can handle it, I yeah,
0: it's a lot there's a lot of books this on record there. keeping done for you. Like you've gone to great pains to yep. probably migrate this file mm-hmm. from computer to computer. Yep. Yep.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it helps me remember what I've read and what books are important to me. Like before we sat down to do this, like I definitely looked through that spreadsheet and was like, Oh yeah. Like this book was really important to me. Like, Oh, this series, like I remember reading that. Um, like, when people ask me for recommendations, I'll often go and look at the spreadsheet and just, like, see what my highest ratings are from the past few years. Um I do an analysis of books every year oh my to, see, to see, like, what books have I read? Like, what was the average rating? Like, what were my favorite books that year? Also, like, what publishers I read to see, like, Because I want to make sure I'm not just reading books, like, from the major publishing houses and I'm trying to be, like, as expansive as possible. And I don't, like, set out to do this every year, so it's kind of interesting to me, like, did I actually manage to do that or did I just read everything from, like, Simon & Schuster?
0: So what were the big winners last year? In terms of? What books did you like the most? Last
1: year? Oh my god. I have to, like, pull up my spreadsheet to tell you. (laughs) You don't remember? (laughs) No! I mean, I read a lot of books last year. I read, like, 60 books.
0: So you don't remember it all? No. That's So what's the point of this spreadsheet if you can't remember what your favorite books are? Well, that's
1: the point of the spreadsheet, is to, like, remember.
0: Oh, I see. You know, so I have this record. Well, that's a good thing. Does your brother do this, too? Like, does every member of your family do this? I don't think he does. Hmm. Well, you know,
1: he's the only one of us who isn't a librarian, so he's a black
0: sheep anyway. That's fair. <laughs> if he's listening. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think you're the black sheep. <laughs> uh, well, is there any book you'd like to recommend by way of ending this interview? Um,
1: well, let's see. So, recently... Um, I read Julia Child's autobiography, um, which I really loved because she's, she's also Smithy, so.
0: Kind of spread those
1: Exactly, yeah. But I loved her and I'm currently reading. So her, I think nephew co-wrote that book with her and then he just now published a biography of her, um, that tells like the next chapter of her life, um about when she was in the U.S., like, working on her cooking show and developing that career. So I'm reading that right now. I'm really enjoying it. Cool. And I'm also reading—I te- actually—it's weird right now. I'm reading a lot of nonfiction. Um, normally I'm more of a fiction reader, but I've been reading more nonfiction lately. Um, and I'm reading a—all the great British Bake Off fans will love this. I'm reading Mary Berry's autobiography wow yeah
0: i'm a fan too yeah how is it
1: it's like i'm not that far in so far but i love it yeah and i love her and there are lots of photos which oh is pretty great gosh. like Anything a lot of vintage mary,
0: mary, mary photos great. oh my gosh <laughs> i definitely need to check that out yeah very you cool. should you should very cool well thank you so much it has been wonderful yeah thank you for having me on I'd like to thank our guest, Anna, for sharing her story with us. I'd also like to thank our technical director, Taylor, for all her help. You can follow us on Instagram, at ChaptersPod. There you'll find Shelby's submitted by our guests, including some from Anna. You can find us on Twitter, at ChaptersPod. You can find me, at MaryMahoney123, and Taylor, at MJTThePhD. Visit our website, www.chapterspod.com, if you'd like to share your story on chapters. You can also find links to every book mentioned on this and every episode on our website. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us in the iTunes store. It really helps listeners find our show. Thanks for listening.